The Long Way Home is produced by The Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. At The Cycling Independent, we say, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. I'm the sort of nerd who will poke around in Wikipedia for entertainment. I'll chase everything from the categorized climbs of the Tour de France to session credits for a Steely Dan song. True story. In 2010, I found myself trying to frame just how dominant a racer Eddie Merckx was. To say he won 525 times is a number so large it might as well be an astronomical unit. I'm not sure why, but I began looking at individual years of his career, examining what he accomplished in a single season. Eventually, I began to ask the question, well, which of them was his best? I began to weigh factors, like how many Grand Tours he won that season and how many monuments he won, how many minor stage races, and of course, how many stage wins he earned. Welcome to the Cycling Independence Podcast, The Long Way Home. I'm your host, Patrick Brady. Each week in The Long Way Home, we will bring you stories about cyclists and cycling, stories that speak to how cycling informs our sense of the world, making our lives more livable. This week's episode features my cover story from Peloton Magazine's second issue titled Annus Mirabilis, The Greatest Season Ever. Digging into Merckx's record was pure entertainment, and writing the feature was as much fun as I've had writing any article I've published. In addition to Wikipedia, I scoured Rick Van Wallegem's biography of Merckx, as well as Bill McGann's story of the Tour de France. And now, Annus Mirabilis, the greatest season ever. A look at why Eddie Merckx's 1972 season will never be duplicated. In life, there are absolutes, the love of our parents, taxes, death, and the fact that Eddie Merckx was the greatest cyclist ever. For a short time after his seventh Tour de France victory, some Americans began to speak of Lance Armstrong as the greatest cyclist. As if. There are few sports in which its greatest protagonist is more readily apparent than in cycling. To say Eddie Merckx had 525 victories spanning 14 years overwhelms the senses and comprehension. It's like asking how bright the sun is. After all, 525 victories works out to an average of nearly 38 victories per year. However, he didn't win a lot at first, nor at the end. The bulk of Merckx's success came in the eight years from 1968 to 1975. Still, that doesn't really hint at how much better he was than the other greats. Of all the feats a cyclist can accomplish, winning the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia in the same year ranks as one of the truly superlative achievements. Only seven riders ever managed to win both the Tour and the Giro in the same year. They are a who's who among legends. Fausto Coppi, Jacques Anquetil, 
Eddie Merckx, Bernard Hinault, Stephen Roach, Miguel Indurain, and Marco Pantani. Three of these riders managed the feat twice, Kopi, Hinault, and Indurain. Only one of them managed it three times, Merckx. That detail alone gives him the win by a bike length, but Merckx wasn't just a Grand Tour rider. He distinguished himself in the one-day races as well. During his career, he won each of the monuments, Milan San Remo, the Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and the Tour of Lombardy. Only two other riders managed this feat, Rick Van Looy and Roger de Vlamek, neither of whom ever won a Grand Tour. Not only did Eddie Merckx snag the Tour Giro double more than any other cyclist, he is the only Grand Tour winner to vanquish each of the monuments. Above all others. Even when you're the greatest of all cyclists, not all years are created equal. Most riders would strip naked and run through the streets singing Debbie Boone songs to enjoy a year like the one Merckx had in 1969 when he won the general classification at the Tour de France, as well as the points, mountains, combativity, and combination awards, not to mention six stages, including the final stage, an individual time trial. Of course, the season didn't start that way. No. He began with a win at Milan San Remo, his third, and followed it up with wins at the Tour of Flanders, his first, and Liège Bastogne Liège, another first. In addition to destroying the competition at the Tour, Merckx took the GC at Paris Nice. Do not be surprised that he was awarded the Super Prestige Paranade International Award as the season's best rider. And while victories in three monuments and a Grand Tour would arguably make any rider's season and career, it wasn't Merckx's best year. That distinction goes to his 1972 season. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor Shimano, and we'll be right back. I need to talk about Shimano's footwear. It would be enough for them to be good at bike components, but they also make some of the best cycling footwear on the market. They were among the first to introduce adjustable footbeds and offered the most affordable moldable shoes on the market. They also offer wide sizes in many of their models. The shoes come in varying levels of sole stiffness, from what I'd call walkable to this ride better not last longer than an hour. Of the many reasons to recommend Shimano's footwear, my favorite comes from the simple fact that their uppers are unusually comfortable. This owes to their ability to shape the vegan leather so that the upper has as few panels as possible. That reduces the number of seams in them, which cuts weight and increases flexibility. With footwear so good, it's not surprising how good their bike parts are. And now, back to The Long Way Home. Fear, thy name is cannibal. By January of 1972, every cyclist alive knew Merckx's name and feared to line up against him. He had won three of his last four Tours de France 
and taken to Giri d'Italia. He had already won each of the monuments at least once, and in the case of Milan San Remo, he had won it four times. He had been the national champion of Belgium. In August of 1971, he scored his second world championship. Merckx began his season in late February with the Trofeo La Guelia, which he didn't win, though he did finish second. From there, he went to the Tour of Sardinia, where he rode almost anonymously and finished 37th overall. His first win of the season came at the early March Circuit Het Volk, a semi-classic. The next week, he finished second at Paris-Nice, despite winning three stages. So, when Eddie Merckx lined up for the first monument of the 1972 season, Milan-San Remo, he was the one rider present with four wins to his credit, as well as the wearer of the rainbow stripes. That a breakaway would form in the 288-kilometer race to the Mediterranean coast lacks surprise. That it contained such favorites as Merckx, Gianni Mota, Marino Basso, and Roger Devlamek is surprising the way the Yankees winning the pennant is. Not. Here's the amazing part. From a group of 12 holding a lead of less than 20 seconds on a large and motivated peloton, Merckx leapt away and carved out a nine-second lead by the time he crossed the finish line in a now well-known one-armed salute with the arc-en-ciel encircling his chest. Merckx wasn't one to skip races and train for his next big rendezvous. Between Milan-San Remo and the Tour of Flanders, the cannibal raced seven times and finished second in five of them. Flanders was a more significant miss, though. He finished seventh. At Ghent-Wevelgem, he was third, but finished seventh again at Paris-Roubaix. No matter. He won his next monument, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and took Flesh Wallonne for good measure. Of the four races he did before starting the Giro, he won one and didn't finish out of the top ten. The Stamp of Authority At the Giro, Merckx's big threat came in the form of a slightly built Spanish climber named José Manuel Fuente. It was Fuente's habit to shred the field any time the road went up a mountain. By Merckx's own admission, Fuente was virtually unbeatable on a short stage with a mountain finish. After giving up two minutes and 30 seconds to Fuente on stage 4A, Merckx turned the tables on the Spaniard on stage 7, dropping him on the run to the finish. Working with Gusta Pedersen, Merckx put four minutes and 13 seconds into Fuente and wrested the pink jersey from him. A double stage day with the two 20-kilometer time trials, he won one and finished second in the other, allowed Merckx to further his lead. Three days later, in stage 14, Fuente did all he could to separate himself from Merckx, but couldn't collect more than a minute. He faltered in the final kilometer of the uphill finish, and Merckx passed him like a kid in a Corvette taking the stage. On stage 16, a day with two climbs, he again dropped Merckx on the socket climb, 
only to see the Belgian return on the descent, drop Fuente, and ride into Livigno more than a minute ahead of the Spaniard. The Chimacopi, the high point of the 1972 Giro, was the Stelvio. Ascending the north side of the climb, Fuente attacked once, was brought back, and then bided his time, and then attacked a second time, in the big ring, no less, this time making it stick. At the finish line, at the top, he had a whopping two minutes and five seconds on Merckx. However, Merckx had a lead of nearly six minutes. Not to worry. The remaining stages, though some contained significant climbs, saw no further improvement in Fuente's gap on Merckx. The penultimate stage was an 18-kilometer time trial that only saw Merckx stretch his lead once again. He won the Giro by 5 minutes, 30 seconds. Breaking the best. At the prologue in Angers, Merckx, wearing the yellow jersey of the reigning champion, chose the opportunity to make a statement. In only 7 kilometers, he put 12 seconds into second place Raymond Poulidor, 13 into Joop Zutmelk, and 15 into the previous year's great threat Luis Ocaña. Merckx finished the day as he started it, clad in the maillot jaune. Cyril Guimar was a talented sprinter and captured the yellow jersey when he sprinted to victory in Stage 1. Stage 3B on July 4th was a time trial, which Merckx's Multani team won, and victory in the stage gave Merckx a 20-second bonus, returning him to yellow. But it wouldn't stay there. Just a day later, Guimard was back at it and took the sprint into Royan, putting him in yellow for the second time. The next day was yet another split stage, with a flat 134-kilometer run for the sprinters, followed by a prologue-like 13-kilometer time trial. Of course, Merckx took the TT, but he didn't gain enough time on Guimard to take back the yellow jersey. That would have to wait until stage 8, the second day in the Pyrenees. He was 11 seconds off of Guimard, but more importantly, he had 51 seconds on Ocaña. Stage 7 was the first mountain stage and took in the Col d'Obisque. On the descent, Ocaña crashed, taking with him Bernard Tevenet. By the finish, he had lost a minute 49 seconds to Merckx. Stage 8, from Po to Luchon, was a classic Pyrenean stage, navigating the Tourmalet, Aspin, and Parasord. When Van Impe attacked on the Parasord, the surprise was that Merckx followed and Ocaña didn't. The gap at the finish was only eight seconds, but it might as well have been eight minutes for what it said of Merckx's strength. Merckx was now back in yellow as Guimard had finished more than three minutes down on him. The cannibal would not relinquish the yellow jersey for the rest of the race. Following two mountain stages, stage 11 to the summit of Mont Ventoux and stage 12 to Orsiere, stage 13 presented a classic alpine stage. The first climb of the day was the Var, followed by the Isoire, a climb that helped seal Fausto Coppi's reputation as the greatest climber of his generation. Even for Merckx, winning in Briançon 
wasn't simply a matter of will. Using his Multani teammates like hammers on a railroad spike, they drove the pace until only 16 riders remained. Raymond Delisle attacked on the VAR, and when Merckx responded, Alcania was dropped. Despite having never ridden the Isoir before, Merckx dumped Guimar like a warm water bottle and kept a group of four chasers, Guimar, Poulidor, Van Impe, and Felice Gimondi, at bay on the descent into Briançon by a minute and 30 seconds. Ocaña, to his credit, managed to cross the line only 10 seconds behind them. The next day was text message breakup cruel. Stage 14A took in 51 mostly uphill kilometers from Briançon to the top of the Col de Galibier, whereupon the racers bombed their way to the ski town of Valois and the finish. In 14B, they departed Valois, made the brief four-kilometer climb up the Telegraph before descending to the valley and to the climb the Grand Coucheron and the Granier. What 14A lacked in distance, 14B made up for with a 151-kilometer ride on tap. Jop Zutmelk summited the Galibier first, but as there were still 17 kilometers to race downhill, his achievement amounted to nothing. Merckx dropped on Zutmelk like a falcon snatching a sparrow from the air, outsprinting the Dutchman for the win. That afternoon, the leaders stayed together until five kilometers from the top of the day's final climb, at which point Merckx, Guimar, Gimondi, Zutmelk, Van Impe, and three others pulled away from what was left of the lead group. At the finish, Guimar took the win from Merckx by less than the thickness of a deck of cards. Ocaña, who couldn't follow the crucial acceleration on the Granier, rolled across the line in 33rd, some 5 minutes 19 seconds down on Guimar. Any hope Ocaña had for yellow was water that evaporated in the summer sun. He withdrew from the race and revealed a lung infection. By now, it was apparent that Merckx's greatest opponent was Guimar, who took the next day's 28-kilometer mass start stage from Aix-les-Bains to the top of mont Rivard. Merckx appeared to be winning, and he raised a hand to celebrate. Guimar threw his bike, embarrassing Merckx in the process, and while Guimar was closest to Merckx on GC, the threat would not last. Following a transitional stage, the race's final mountain stage ascended the Ballon d'Alsace. Guimard had been suffering knee pain for most of the race, and while he had hidden his trouble from the others, the pain saw him struggle to stay with the leaders, eventually finishing two minutes down. The next day he started, only to withdraw after 10 kilometers. Though Merckx would go on to win the Versailles time trial, the race was effectively over the moment Guimard climbed off his bike. Merckx's winning margin over Felice Gimondi was a commanding 10 minutes, 41 seconds. The Merckx would win the green jersey of the points classification. He took over the jersey upon Guimard's retirement from the race. The Frenchman had worn the jersey since stage one when he took it off Merckx, who had won it in the prologue. Guimard was brought up on the podium to present the jersey to Merckx, who promptly returned it 
saying it really belonged to him. In the week following the tour, the closest thing Merckx took to a day off was one of his two abandonments all season, beginning the day after the tour ended and going straight through to August 1st, Merckx recorded three more wins at post-tour criteriums, as well as four top tens. He then took four days off to rest before the World Championship road race and gap. At the World Championships, Merckx helped to make the final selection of seven riders. In the group with Merckx were Guimar, already back from his knee injury, Zutmelk, Franco Bitosi, Marino Basso, Michele Cancelli, and Leif Mortensen. With less than five kilometers to go, Guimar took a flyer and Bitosi latched on, but refused to pull through. Guimar slowed and the group reeled them in. But at the moment of the catch, Bitosi took off. What happened next defies explanation. Bitosi's teammate on the Italian national team, Basso, took up the chase. Soon, he recruited Merckx, Guimar, and Zutmilk to pull. At the line, Basso pipped Bitosi while Guimar bested Merckx for bronze. So close. Following the world championship, Merckx didn't let up on his schedule of racing. In the two months leading up the Tour of Lombardy, he raced 28 times and took 16 wins and 8 top 10s. Lombardy played the protagonists of the Tour de France against each other yet again, this time with the outcome expected in Paris. Merckx broke away from a group containing Guimard and Gimondi and by the finish put a minute and 27 seconds into them. Guimard took the sprint from Gimondi. Still, Merckx wasn't through with his season. He raced four more times, winning three and taking second in the other. Only then did he take eight days off, during which time he traveled to Mexico City to tower the hour record. Still, Merckx wasn't through with his season. He raced four more times, winning three and taking second in the other. Only then did he take eight days off, during which time he traveled to Mexico City to tackle the hour record. The cannibal decided he would not only take the hour record, but he would set the record for both the 10 and 20 kilometer distances along the way. Ole Ritter, who held all three records, had set each record during individual rides, not in one ambitious hammer fest. In setting a new mark for the hour, Merckx bettered what only 19 men before had achieved. Merckx went on to beat Ritter's time for 10 kilometers by 19 seconds and his 20 kilometer time by 11 seconds. Ritter's mark of 48.653 kilometers fell by nearly a kilometer, with Merckx setting a new mark of 49.431. It was the biggest increase in the mark in the previous 17 records, going back to Oscar Egg's mark of 43.525 kilometers set in 1913. What makes the 1972 season so extraordinary isn't Merckx's win rate, though it was superlative. 
He won 51 of 137 races, giving him a 37% victory rate. When you consider the number of top three finishes he had, his rate of success is an astonishing 57%. Just imagine a season in which more than half the time you wind up on the podium. Just how many magnums of champagne can a man shake? Merckx had another season where he won more often. But the reason why 72 remains his best year is simple. It's a year on which an entire career could be built. Two Grand Tours, three monuments, and the hour record. Though Kopi and Anquetil could claim the Tour Giro double and both set the hour record, Merckx was the first, and only, to achieve all three in the same year. As some pointed out, after beating the entire peloton, when Merckx set out to conquer the hour record, he vanquished the one person he hadn't previously humbled, himself. Thanks for listening to Annus Mirabilis, The Greatest Season. For those who want to read more about Merckx's many stunning wins, I recommend Bill McGann's second volume of his Story of the Tour de France, as well as both volumes of his Story of the Giro d'Italia. The Long Way Home is produced by The Cycling Independent. Our motto is, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. Find us on the web at cyclingindependent.com or on Facebook at The Cycling Independent. Be sure to check out our other podcasts, The Pace Line, which I co-host with John Lewis, Revolting, which lives up to its name in some ways, but is highly entertaining and is hosted by John and Stevel Knievel of All Hail the Black Market, and our limited series, Enter the Deuce, which isn't much to do with bikes, but digs deep into the trials of being a parent in the most challenging circumstances possible. This is where we ask you to subscribe. We are primarily community supported and need subscribers to keep the servers on. Maybe consider leaving a review wherever it is you found us. It makes it more likely other people will listen in. Constructive criticism is also accepted. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady. Thanks for listening to The Long Way Home. Music